1: Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950, with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from
0: Welcome to the kindness podcast. In this episode, I sat down with ambitious entrepreneurial founder and managing director of the Great British Exchange Matthew Hopkins. In the show, he talks about the state of the British high street, how it seems to be that there's a shift towards nostalgic localism. He shares with us how success in his business manifested itself and consequently made himself unhappy. This realization has now made him rethink his life and his business model to be more kind. It's an interesting story about what we really want. You're going to enjoy this one. My name's Tim Bosworth, and this is The Kindest Podcast. Well, hi, welcome to The Kindest Podcast My guest today is an ambitious entrepreneurial business leader, the founder of the Great British Exchange. Uh, It's a unique business model uh, that sources British made products to the UK and to international retail network. He's worked with world-class leading brands, businesses and personalities. I think his drive and openness and honesty have made him a well-respected business leader uh, Matthew Hopkins, welcome to The Kindness Podcast. Hi, Tim. Thanks uh, for having me. No, pleasure. pleasure, buddy. Um, I want to start, if I may, to get an understanding of why you think
1: British is best. Good question. I don't think necessarily British is best. I think that um, there's been a shift over a number of years towards... Actually, I think it's span off the back of the last recession where there was a shift towards nostalgic localism. And I think we saw that firstly in, in food, where we were seeing certain types of produce, jams and various other things uh, popping up. And I think people like to, in certain circumstances, buy um, more artisanal, homegrown produce that's got a story to it, Um we see that more and more in non-food now, where it's transitioned over to the gifting market, where if if I give you this glass, Tim, from Ikea, it's not that exciting. If I give you this glass that I've had made by a local artisan glass blower and it it costs three times the price, but it's got a story to it. It's got something quite compelling. I think that nostalgic element's been something that we've seen growing more and more. And do you think
0: that, I mean, imagine not just British, but... um, the idea of of gifting and the idea of being celebratory of your own culture. You know, you you purport the idea of showcasing those local makers, those artisan makers. Do you think that is something that has lacked in the past and therefore you're, you've seen opportunity and you're you're now championing
1: that? Provenance is important. Story and provenance is important. And I think particularly in gifting and I think the consumer over the years has become quite savvy, um, and there's a there's an interesting split in my experience between almost like a semi-disposable marketplace, cheap, fast, quick, tomorrow, and something that's a bit more elegant, uh, thought through, it has got a story behind it, well made, handmade, uh, and and connected to a provenance. So you know, you go up to the west coast of Scotland and you buy a beautiful artisan jug it's a memory it's a it's a connection where your cupboards might be filled full of the normal stuff you might find on a a a high street store you know so i think yeah those things have really started to to make a big difference the consumer being savvy knowing that they can get something cheap and knowing that they they can also go and find something that's got a a point of difference which do you think
0: the, the modern consumer values more Cheap and quick or slow and uh, more provenance-led? I mean, it, it depends.
1: <laughs> uh, they probably would say the provenance-led, but in reality, where do they spend their pounds? Every time it's on price. I have um, a number of different licensed brands that we work with. Um, I've worked with, you know, Jamie Oliver... And uh, I've worked with with Masterchef, we worked with the Great British Bake Off, we work with a guy called Tom Kerridge. And Tom's been really interesting. So Tom is very much an advocate of local produce, good quality local produce. And when we started the project with Tom, we went around and found uh, a number of very amazing British manufacturers. And it's quite difficult to find British manufacturers of, of pans and knives who are willing and able to produce at the volumes that we need and the price points. And those products are beautiful. I'll actually let you have some samples. The the, the pans are absolutely The quality is. I'm. These we'll them at the Hand and Flowers, which is Tom's restaurant, and the, and the Corinthians. They're, they are phenomenal. And yet the consumers don't buy them because the pan retails at 120 quid with a lifetime guarantee with to the best specifications designed by one of the top UK two Michelin star chefs. But the consumer for some reason, psychologically would rather buy a pan for 25 quid accepting that in 12 or 18 months, the handle will probably fall off and then they'll just replace it. So there's something we've lost in that it's built to last and I'm going to look after it and keep it and season the pan. And, you know, rather than once it breaks, it breaks. Mm. And I think we see that across fashion uh, food. I mean, you look at the organic, you know, people are going to the supermarket and they'll go, I'm going to get organic. I'm going organic. I'm going to help save the planet. And the carrots, one pound 30. And then they look down and the normal carrots are, you know, 30p it's like i'm not that bothered <laughs> mm. i'll go i'll go cheap and that's just and do you think then that we are all probably
0: price sensitive so our conscious and our our moral piece is saying we're doing our best for the planet but what you're saying is the bottom line is we'll go price every time yeah i do so where does the british or the great british
1: exchange come in then um it's a it, it, good question it it, it creating choice um and so we have um two sides so the great british exchange originally the original model and we talk about pivoting and evolution of your business model the concept i'll tell you i'll go back and explain the story so i was sat with jamie oliver talking about developing a range of british made goods for him i went off and looked and found various manufacturers um, but we decided not to do that project project sim- simply because his brand we'd already established a mass market retail level, so that was couldn't really go up. And um, but on that journey, I met literally hundreds of really cool, really exciting, really innovative British. I don't really like the word artisanal, but SME manufacturers of all different types of produce, from food to non food and fashion and so on. But there was a common theme with most of them, and that was they were all struggling to get into that next level of mainstream retail. And if we looked at their simple kind of distribution, they would all be quite successful within about an hour and a half drive of wherever they were producing things. And at the time, this is 2012, 2013, the retailers seemed to just have their heads above and not seeing them because these guys couldn't necessarily afford to go to mainstream trade shows or, uh, you know, you look at something like the Spring Fair, which is happening at the moment, a stand would cost anything from two and a half to 20,000 pounds. And most small businesses can't afford that. So we, we in our infinite wisdom, we decided we were going to set up a business-to-business marketplace, an online marketplace. So if you think about something like not on the high street, but a wholesale model where retailers could go on, they could see thousands of different brands and uh, select those, almost put them into their basket. We had a built-in and operational infrastructure that was designed in part with UPS, and we had some box configurating software. It's a really cool piece of kit. And when we switched it on, although the retailers were really intimated that this is something that they really wanted, they didn't want to buy in that way. The consumers didn't. The retailers. So this was for retailers. This is a business-to-business platform. Mm. Um, so although now perhaps we were a little bit ahead of our time, but then when we started to talk with more larger retailers, the guys like John Lewis and Nacado and so on, they really love the, the the love the concept. They 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 were getting demand from the consumers for localism, and uh, or personalization or smaller scale um, um, seasonal events, Eid, Diwali, that kind of thing, where it wasn't really a mainstream event like Easter or something, you know, for for a retail calendar. Um, and that's what we, we then adapted the model to service those larger retailers in more of a traditional wholesale sense um and um and that then the business has kind of moved on and grown from from there really um so we now offer a service to those retailers by having almost like a distributor of Thousands and thousands of small artisan brands, which we bring newness, variety, exclusivity, a point of difference against a John Lewis competitor, mm-hmm. um, and they don't have to worry about it. They get it all through one one supply. So the challenge then is, from a business
0: point of view, is the attraction, and by that I mean, how is a consumer going to be aware of your products? Is this the idea is that they're all be, going to be driven to the? Great British Exchange websites? No,
1: so we don't... We're a B2B model. Right, So okay. we don't... Apologies, yeah. No, no we, so we don't want to... Uh, we have considered it. Mm. Um, but we are a... We, we're a business-to-business platform model. Um, we, we don't sell to the consumers at all. Um, it, it's a very different... So place. how does the pricing
0: work then, in terms of the retailer? Uh,
1: so on our wholesale model um as you would expect so we buy a bottle for five pounds we sell it for 10 the retailer puts on their margin etc etc so it's very um very traditional in that in that sense are you selective of the retailers that you choose yeah so what are the key attributes
0: or selection criteria that you would want to ensure that your retailers are of a certain providence
1: um i think I think in part it's actually an it's a natural chemistry I think the retailers that we partner with are looking for those that level of products they're looking for that level of newness um but we it's essential that the retail partners that we do work with really want to get behind the 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 efforts that we're making and uh, and promote the, the the small businesses themselves and and, and interestingly where we went back to... So, for example, where we saw enormous growth in the business 2016-17 was in gin. So gin exploded um, around there, around that time. And uh, we have now, I think somewhere in the region of about 250 gin distilleries and various other alcohol suppliers. So there was just a trend that we picked up in that artisanal level. um, And now every... Town village village hall produces their own kind of gin uh, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, so um, in in some ways our success in some ways has been product led, um, and uh, you know like anything you know there's a little bit of luck. It was a little bit lucky that we were in with the gin thing at the time that it really took off, and um, and. I keep using the name of John Lewis, but they then turned to us and asked us to curate their gin library for them, uh, which was massive. Um, but in that context, a, a consumer going to John Lewis isn't looking to buy their bottle of Gordons that they were put in every week. It's more gift-orientated or a, a self-purchase, something a bit special. And often we see that the the, the sales of Uh, the particular gins that do well are the bottle it's the bottle design it's not necessarily the contents interesting uh it's something that really stands out on shelf and i remember being in oxford street in uh, must have been christmas 2018 2019 and um stood at the uh, i don't know how familiar you are with oxford street john lewis but you go down the escalators to the and um I've never seen consumer behaviour like that, where they were coming down the escalator, hand on the bottles and just one after the other after the other. It was, yeah. it was phenomenal. The sales were, were enormous for us, so really successful. So
0: what that says to me, then, um, is that consumers are, on the one hand, price sensitive, mm-hmm. and they want the Providence piece, but they also want it, want it yesterday. Yet, on a very visceral level, if it looks nice, they'll buy it. Yeah, yeah. So from your sourcing perspective, how do you, cause I'm, I don't know why I'm assuming this, but I'm assuming that a lot of the artisanal producers and makers aren't in it for the eye candy. They're not designing their products and services, or, or products, I should say, because they look nice. It's probably more about the providence and the, the backstory and the, the workmanship that goes into it. Or do you have to, have to advise and go, well, actually,
1: nice pan, but can you make it look nice and shiny? Sometimes we certainly have to advise... Uh, often around packaging. Um and uh some of that's kind of common sense, some of that's a lack of experience. Some of the businesses that we work with are quite small and new and often, particularly on the pop-up side of the business, which I'll talk about, they're often inventors or, you know, they're not necessarily salespeople or not necessarily have a marketing background. So yes, there's elements of advice that we offer. Um And, uh, so, but are they, I think they are very passionate. We've got somewhere in the order of around 10,000 brands now, what we're working with. And, uh, they're very passionate people about their products. And so they do, they do want to stand out and, and in the world generally, but particularly in retail at the moment, there's a lot of noise. It's difficult for a small business to stand out, um, which is partly where our pop-up model really works. And again, especially for those really small brands, where if you you imagine a product lifecycle curve, um, the brands that we put in at a wholesale level are kind of in their growth phase. Um, So often the products that you'll see in John Lewis are fairly new to market, uh, on then their emerging brands. Whereas the businesses that we bring in at a pop-up level are, are usually newer and are lower down that growth curve. But it's a great platform. So we did something like 1,000 pop-ups last year with different retailers, Boots and Fenix and John Lewis and so on. And it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity and a, and a, a cost-effective opportunity for this very small brands to go into a high footfall store with you know, you know, almost a guaranteed public coming through to yes make sales, um, but certainly to really talk to their customer and really get their feedback, um, and often that's one of the things that I particularly talk to our, our businesses are about is just. Going into John Lewis is, or I really tell it, is not the holy grail. You have to understand your customer. Mm. You have to really understand your demographic and carve out your niche in that category.
0: And are you advising those businesses on, it's almost like the the, the prep talk before the big games, like, look guys, you've got a great opportunity here. You really need to take advantage of that. Are you giving them the advice and the guidance to say, well, look, here's, a, as you said, a very limited opportunity, but an opportunity and one in which you
1: can really take advantage of, to best give your brand the best exposure possible. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's come through learning ourselves. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we couldn't really see the, the pattern. So some brands would go in and, and do enormously well. And we said, oh, is that the time of the year? Is it there's something going on? Or uh, And often it boils down to the actual individuals. Because if they're sat there behind their desk that we set them up with or table, and they're just sat on their phone all afternoon... They need to engage. They really need to be. And we know it's the passionate guys, the guys who really understand how to sell and how to get people to come over. Let me show you what mm. we do. And mm. that makes an enormous difference. So, but they've got that platform. They've got that opportunity there in the stores. Have you seen, uh, so great, it made me smile as you were talking about that sort that of passion and
0: enthusiasm. You've seen the Wolf of Wall Street. Of course. And the scene. Try to emulate it. Yes, I'm sure. Um, and the scene and, uh about being asked to sell a pen yeah um have you worked in sales before yeah so what's your take on selling so there's two schools of thought i i believe is the 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 people who sell and then there's the marketeers Mm. and i'm married to a marketeer i'm a salesman and i have different views and beliefs on which one gets the deal um which one in your opinion from the uh Maker's perspective is going to get that deal, get that sale. Is it selling the product or is it marketing it with a nice little sort of bit of eye candy
1: and a nice store? Um, getting the sale is the, it's the sales. Getting the deal is the salesperson. Um, b- but in order to that for that brand to grow and to develop, it ha- you have to have the full package. You have to have the marketing. You have to have the branding. You have to have the the softer stuff that sort of goes around that on the day in the store the salesman will get the deal but you're not going to be in the store when that gets listed into main ranging and you are then against just on a wall with everyone else's products in that category you have to stand out and we 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 did a lot with with candles i mean the market's saturated with candles of all different but it's the ones that stand out are a little bit different in some way they're the ones that it, the, and it, you usually often is the packaging that makes a massive difference
0: so what makes a good uh, a good brand then
1: in your opinion um, what makes a good brand a brand that understands its target customer first and foremost understands the pricing architecture um, often we've had to go back with brands who have started off on a b2c model and they've created their pricing accordingly but then there's an opportunity into a retail or wholesale and they haven't created the the margin uh, the f- sufficient margin to allow a retailer so then all of a sudden they jump from a product that's great was selling really well at consumer level b2c but then they can't then make that happen at b and then it becomes kind of the economies of scale they have to leap forward significant volumes to, to get the, the, the price of the packaging, the, the raw materials, et cetera, et cetera, down to a level where they can uh, build in that retailer margin. And that's a big, big jump unless mm. you've got something phenomenal that's just going to go from, you know, zero to 100 overnight.
0: So where, where did this interest in, in retail and business
1: come from? Um, I mean, I, I think I've always had an interest in, In fact, funnily enough, I didn't go and do it, but um, I did actually get um, uh, onto a course in Manchester University to study retail and psychology with retail. Um, I wish now I'd done it. Um, But that was very much around what makes people buy one thing over another. And a lot of that is, you know, colours, shapes, you know, and, and so on. Um, and retailer behaviour. You know, obviously we all know there's a reason why they put the eggs at the back of the store. You know, that's kind of not rocket science, but...
0: Why is that, Matt? Tell us.
1: (laughs) Well, you go on a journey through the store, don't you? You pass... And particularly men are the worst. You go in to buy some eggs and you come up with 60 quids worth of (laughs) stuff.
0: So true. Often the time I've gone in, I've thought, what is in my basket? Why
1: do I need that? Yeah, Yeah, very much so.
0: So um, if you don't mind, uh, take me back uh, and then on a journey as to Matt, the early years. Clearly, you know you're a very, very informed, thoughtful business leader. Uh, was that always the case? Were, you know, were you one who would be very much astute and and very studious at, at school, or, or
1: the complete opposite? Take me back uh, to the early years, if you don't mind. Um, so I was born in Manchester in 1976. I um, uh, my dad worked for a um, uh, a, a company in, in Leeds and was commuting over every every day. And I think in the late 70s, early 80s, that was kind of manageable. And then obviously traffic across the M62 got worse, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I remember him coming home one day and saying, I found this place just outside Leeds, nice, called Harrogate. I'm going to move over there. And at the time, there's just um, my, my my myself, my younger brother and my mum, we moved over to Harrogate. And I um, was uh, quite lucky. I was... Put into a private school, Grosvenor House. Loved it. Um, got a, um, a, a sports scholarship into Asheville College. Uh, hated it. Um, went from what felt like a school that was kind of old school, old money, you know, to something that was very bling, very shiny and, you know, it's what you're wearing. What trainers have you got? And I didn't really like that very much. Um was oh, I just found it uh very cliquey and very um uh false very false uh and um you know met some right. nice people there but um yeah, it was all very very money orientated
0: were you aware of this then, or was this you looking back retrospectively
1: uh I think I was aware of some of it then um I've been aware of that increasingly over the years. And then recently, I think that kind of also formed part of my, uh, struggles in my ch- childhood, my, my early years into my teenage years. And, um, yeah. And then, um, um, we, uh, uh, lived in a house, moved to a house in Burnbridge, which is nice. And, um, yeah, so um and then I decided not to go to university. I wanted to work, wanted to earn, and um I took a few sales jobs, knocking door to door salesmen. Um and what then were took, you selling? Oh, all sorts of stuff. Crap like like electric scissors and dishcloths and stuff like that. But I was earning money, so um And then I worked at another company in Leeds um, who did promotional merchandise, T-shirts and caps and that kind of stuff. And that was okay. And then I I took a a sales job again, marketing sales job at a company in Harrogate who used to manufacture washroom hygiene products and insect killing machines and that kind of stuff, which was really my first um, involvement in B2B wholesale distribution uh, and I worked there for nine and a half years saw that business grow quite significantly sold to an American business and I left at, around that time um, and then I went to work for a company called Merrison who um, were a very successful seller of non-food produce into the supermarkets particularly Albert Hine which is the big dutch supermarket chain in fact they had the the rights to sell all non-food um and uh i I remember having the conversations that you don't get contracts like this anymore so they had a 25 year contract exclusively to sell all non-food into the supermarket (laughs) on on two week 14 day payment terms with a guarantee that the supermarket would clear out the stock after six months. <laughs> and I'm like, and I've, I've just like, this is a company I want to work for because it's kind of, it's wow. Teflon. Gosh, can you imagine and, getting deals like that now? Oh, just, it just doesn't happen. So, well, you can imagine my struggles when I was effectively setting up the UK p- business and I'm getting the, kind of the Dutch finance team going, fuck, Matt. what what, what kind of deal is this this is shit go back to tesco and tell them tell them this is how we do business and i remember saying to this guy nico yeah okay can you come with me because yeah please yeah (laughs) when the laughing is out of the car park um but it was there that we um first met with jamie oliver and we took our first steps into proper licensed branding um And if you don't
0: mind, sorry to interrupt you there, for the the listeners, what is licensed branding?
1: Okay, so um, this is where you um, uh, approach a brand, like Jamie Oliver, for example, and it might not be something that they do as a rudimentary part of their their core. So for Jamie, under his agreement and license, we would go and source... um, different categories of products, but everything from pots, pans, barbecues, giftware, textiles, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that was very successful. Um, it was difficult in the early stages because we were all finding our way, but, um, you know, without going into the numbers, by the time I was leaving, we were delivering significant Numbers in royalties to to Jamie. We were distributed globally from Australia, to UK, Canada, all around Europe. Major supermarkets, major loyalty programs going on, um, and Jamie was at his absolute peak at the time. And I remember we were we were in New York with Jamie, New York somewhere in America with Jamie um, when his thirty minute meals book outsold Harry Potter. Of the biggest non-fiction book of all time, and that was just—he was flying then, I remember that absolutely flying. And and you know, I know Jamie is a bit marmite to some people, but um, he's a good, genuine guy. He's, he's a good businessman, um, a very caring man, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he we did. We did some good stuff with Jamie, And we had other licenses. So we worked with Coca-Cola, we worked with Laura Ashley, we worked with Campbell Soup, we worked with the Smurfs. That was that was an interesting one. Uh, the Smurfs is an example. He took market territories and reactions. We, we did a... So this what we did with the Smurfs is we did um, a loyalty program where you collect little Smurfette and Gargamel's figurines, <laughs> And uh, then, of course, on the back of that, we did a range of merchandise from beach towels to plush toys and whatever. And we launched in Holland and Germany, at Ambiente, which is the big trade show. And no word of a lie, we had con- potential retail customers four deep off the stand. We had to get a security guard overnight. This is for the Smurfs. This is for the Smurfs, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. But they'd just done a deal with Sony to do the, the first Smurf film. Right. And I'm like, Smurfs, yeah, I remember something that my dad used to get at the petrol station. Anyway. And um, and we went, yes, this is it. We're gonna nail it. Launched at the Spring Fair in in Birmingham. No one. No one. It was like tumbleweeds past the stand. People would come back, go, Smurfs, Smurfs, yeah. I remember them. Anyway, but that was. Um, so why why was there no one there brands it wasn't that there's was no one there they just weren't interested in the brand right so it's just very interesting how markets react to different brands different products etc um so yeah so that and so um back to the kind of journey so so then um the the kind of journey rumbled on with different brands licensed products, etc. And as I mentioned, I was sat with Jamie, wanted to do a range of British-made goods. It was almost the next step. And that's where I, around then, I kind of had this idea of the concept, because I could see, the particularly retail and driven by consumers, the demand for locally made produce. You know, as I said, off the back of a recession where typically, you know, men grow beards, knitwear comes back into fashion, jam making kits come out. It was all that kind of nostalgic sort of stuff that yeah, kind of happens. Yeah. And, um, and I remember at the time people going, oh, yes, this is exactly, this is great. This is absolute. Wish I'd thought of that idea. Mm. So from that point, you think, yeah, we've made it. <laughs> you know, write your own paycheck kind of thing. Which so how it, did. Which um, it absolutely wasn't.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. So how did success manifest itself for you then? Were you, were you buying the sports car? Were you buying the house? Were you buying the watches, etc.?
1: cetera? Um, interesting question, because I think that then layers into another question around stress and what you perceived, what perceived or what perception is you have for success. And I think recently I have now realised that, that was what I was it was all money. It was money, it was car, it was house, it was house abroad, it was two houses abroad. it was whatever. it was all around this utopic destination where you exit the business or you sell the business or dividends or whatever, and the money just rolls in. and then from that point on, happiness starts. And I now realize that I haven't been happy. Th- for a long, long time.
0: Interesting. And um, was there a particular moment that you thought, you know what? Nah,
1: this is not happening. The business? Both, work, life. <laughs> um, y- y- yeah, yeah. And, and y- you are kind of, it's ingrained in you to grit, show more grit, head down, get on with it, succeed, drive, and um don't show weakness um and just keep going keep going keep going keep going and it'll happen and I'm pretty sure I've made people ill along the way including myself of just you know being typically entrepreneurial with your own business and you think especially once you get into the realms of fairly significant investment because you're feeling of responsibility then kind of goes, it's not just me and my money anymore. It's, it's you know, um, you know e- even if they're kind of uh, not just private equity investors, but they're more institutional investors, but even so it's the same. Mm-hmm. And um, and you kind of then hop, so that's not working, that's not working fast enough, Right, we've got to go onto this. And at one point, Tim, um, and I sh- it kind of makes me feel a bit ill, we had 12 business models within the business. Ranging from hand sanitizer to corporate gifting to the 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 web model to the wholesale model to I can't even think what they were, Mm. and you know I've I've had people pretty much in tears going I can't my head's just spinning.
0: And was that because you're driving them to do more, more, more? Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: I'm driving. I'm I'm desperate for it to to it to happen, for it to be the success to for us to reach this utopia that um I had in my head. And did you feel that you got there? Um no. No, I don't. I think my views on uh life and business have changed recently. Mm. Um, I think something I was listening to um with Reed Hoffman um and it's so true where he was saying it's kind of uh, some things you won't do anymore is just work yourself to death, and it's it's about being effective, not. Just drive, 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 and and if you can be more considered in your approach, uh, more thoughtful, more mindful, um, then then things generally happen. Um, so that's a learning for me.
0: So were you a? This will lead me onto my first question, but were you a kind
1: person? No. No, I don't, I don't think, I think I'm quite new to kindness. I think, um, I think some events that have happened recently, um, which, and I use the word stress kind of loosely really, but it's, it's a feeling of fear, hopelessness, panic and desperation um, create this, this stress, um, and I've been medicated for high blood pressure for years and it's just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And I remember my doctor saying, look, Matt, you've just got to stop because I can give you as many pills as you want, but ultimately this is emanating from somewhere. And, um, I think, yeah, no, to answer your question, I don't, I don't think I was, I think I've always been a, a good person here. Um, but have I always been kind? no. No, I don't think I have. So where does that come from, do you think? Um, so I have had some fairly, um, interesting experiences over the last 12 months where, which ultimately, um, resulted in the breakdown of our marriage and which is obviously very sad, um. And that really came from just a, this funnelling into just focusing on just the business. I probably pushed away friends, pushed away family, um, just in desperate, not desperate, in desperation to just achieve this goal, just become blinker. And I don't think COVID helped. I don't think, I think that really did kind of compound the situations, but after we, the, 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 the key thing being the marriage sort of broke down. I almost had like a massive slap around the face, just going, What? What? It's what's it all about? You know, a bit of a kind of questioning one's morality. And, um, and I, I, I even spoke to my doctor and said, You know, I, I, this has happened and how bad it is. And he went, Thank God. Thank God. It, it, it could have been your health because you were classic. Going to have a heart attack, um, and uh, on the back of that, it was suggested that I go and um, have some uh, therapy sessions and talk to someone, which I did, and then it all kind of came to light that I, um, uh, my, I my childhood wasn't great, so there was. Abuse and abandonment, and um, yeah, it wasn't particularly great. And I'd l- uh, locked that away. Um, I mean, really locked it away. And when I first met with my therapist that I, I speak to regularly now, she she said, "There's a there's a beautiful person in there. There's a loving, caring, beautiful boy in there." He said, but she said, Matt, you're fucking armor plated. Said, your coping mechanisms, your, your highly skilled uh, d- d- self defense. And, you know, I've, since having those kinds of conversations and uh, m- and, you know, the way I feel and my eyes have just been opened to the rest of the world, cause I wasn't, I was not doing anything that I love and I enjoy. I wasn't spending any of the time. And, and in a way now I'm excited about the future. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's been a, a, an interesting and difficult few, few months.
0: So the question I ask people, which I'm sure you could answer pre-Matt then and, and perhaps Matt now, is what does kindness mean to you now then?
1: Feeling, really feeling, um, compassion um, and and, and, a, and, a, and a human connection. And I... I have experienced this myself, I suppose, in a way of a mirror where, for the first time ever, really, I haven't cried for 30 years, I've cried a lot recently, but I haven't had those, I don't think, real honest human connections. And I've probably had a number of conversations now with people where I've just gone, blah, that's what's happened, that's me. And to my incredible surprise, just being open and honest and willing and feeling and showing my vulnerability to others, it's mirrored. And all of a sudden, people who I thought were Teflon aren't. Everyone's had issues. Everyone's had, not everyone to lesser extent, but um, and people are honest back, and they and suddenly there is a kindness of genuine connection and kindness. And I, I, towards the end of last year, I I, I took some time out. I went to Thailand and it's, I went there for what, nearly four weeks. Um, And uh, the first week was terrifying, genuinely terrifying. I've never been on my own. And what I mean by that is, yeah, of course I've been on my own. (laughs) I'm 45, but I've never really been on my own in a different time zone where no one from the business was to contact me. Uh, I I was on my own. I didn't know anybody. And all of a sudden, all I'm left with is my thoughts. And I went to dark place. And some of those thoughts are, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, You know, they're really not healthy thoughts. And to your question about kindness, and I was sat on a beach, and I'll I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. I was sat on this beach, there was nobody else around. And I just was spiralling these thoughts. And I've always struggled with this anyway, particularly I don't sleep. I didn't sleep, didn't sleep very well. And then at night time, you know how the kind of thoughts just just spiral out of control. And I was just I, this was the middle of the day. And I was like, going, and I remember just going, fuck, Matt, stop. Just stop. That's you that's it. That's enough. <laughs> you've gone down to the bottom of the barrel, you've you've explored that. Now, what does the future hold? And and start being, you know, more positive and excited about things like that. But when I came off that beach, this lady came over, to a Thai lady. She came over to me and she I didn't know who she was. And she just said, are you okay? Are you all right? And she just looked me right into my soul. And I just said, no, <laughs> I'm not. And I sat and I talked to her for about two hours about, and she ended up in tears. I ended up in tears just talking about her background and there was a genuine kindness someone who was the empathy and the warmth that she offered i've I've rarely felt in my life and I mirrored that with her and you know and we'll mess each other now and she's it's it's a, it's just a completely so when I say I'm new to kindness i've had experiences in the last six months and connections with people in the last six months that came out of a traumatic experience, which was linked to my childhood. I I had a, I had a breakdown. I, you know, I, I really did. And although in therapist world, they call it a breakthrough, not a breakdown, but, um, so that, you know, that kindness to me is a, is a feeling of compassion and, and connection, real connection.
0: You know, just just listening to you there, Matt, is, um, you know, it's showing your vulnerability and your honesty. And, and not many people are as open and as honest about their feelings, but I think it's really important for anyone listening to take stock and say it is okay, particularly in the world we live in now, it is okay to say, I'm not okay. Mm. Um it's connected. Yeah, sure. And, and I get it. You know, we, we're all very busy. I've mentioned this in previous episodes. We're all very busy. But being able to take that moment and just go, as you said, Matt, stop. Yeah. Or Tim, stop. Or whoever you are, just take a moment and stop. Um, I, I commend you on that. Um And you touched on the fact that you, you had a, a breakthrough um, or a breakdown, and which leads me on to that second question, which is similar to some of the, the feelings that you were feeling. Um, and I think you can answer this now with, with complete honesty and openness. If you were to die tomorrow, what would you do differently to be the kindest in the room?
1: I, I would um, pass on my, le- my learnings and my awareness to my kids. Because I think it's a generational issue. Um, and I would teach them to, with kindness, love themselves. Because until you learn to love yourself, I don't think you can really genuinely love other people. And do you love yourself now, Matt? Mm, um, working on it, working on it, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm working on it.
1: Um, yeah, I've got a way to go, yeah.
0: But I'm getting there. Sure. I think. No, I think um, the idea is being self-aware is half of the battle. You yeah, know, it's being acknowledging that there is or was a problem. Yeah, and then pushing through with that. Uh, and I think for, again for a lot of people listening to this, the essence of the show is is finding those patterns and be able to step outside of your your current situation. And go, you know what? That was hard. That was tough. Yeah. That was difficult. And reach out to that person. Or even if it's just taking time out to journal or to think about where you are. Yeah. Because you're right, we're all chasing. We are all chasing. And I've said this before on, on episodes that I'm a victim of it myself. And and the essence of the show for me, what I get out of this, is learning to be a better person myself. Yeah. Through learning through others, getting, well, you know what? The message seems to be be kind to yourself. Yeah. The message seems to be reach out to people. And if the show can do anything to anyone out there, it's to take stock and go. Just take a moment and it it's is, hard.
1: It is. And 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 as I now realise, I mentioned earlier about this kind of life. My uh, ambition uh, was, was this utopic destination of happiness, which is bollocks, because happiness in that regard is a marketing man's dream of going, you know, you buy that house, Tim, and you're going to be happy, you buy that car and you're going to be happy. That's bollocks. That's not true. It doesn't exist. Because That's the future that might probably won't ever happen the real key is to find the happiness or the joy in the process in the day to day it's the journey we're all on a path we're on a journey and and i, I listened to a really you probably listened to it before it's that matthew mcconaughey talks to the addresses the houston university uh, graduation thing and you know and they they talk about this again they talk about you know this this happiness is is not a destination it is a journey and and when I listened to that and and I was, he, he, he talks about, you know, finding your path, what's your hill, what's your goal? And he said he had five. And I, I remember it was friendships, being a good father, being a good husband, staying fit and healthy and, and obviously his career. And he said, if those are your goals, then you've got to check in with all of them because the minute you take your eye off the ball with one of them, you know, something's gonna suffer and it will get ill and sick and p- potentially die. And I looked at my life uh, with his five things, not necessarily that they're mine, but, and I said, shit, you know, the only thing really was obviously i would working hard on my career. I'd left friendships flat, left my relationship. And, but every day I thought to myself, get up, go to the gym, go to the gym, go to the gym. So something in me, whilst all that stress and noise was going on, I knew I had to stay healthy. And I hopefully did, but, um, that's worth a, a watch. <laughs> Definitely. Gosh,
0: Matt, do you know, I, I commend you. I, I commend you. It's, it's, it's raw. It's honest. It's open. I'm just going from a business point of view as well, yeah. because anyone who runs their own business, anyone who works for a corporate organization is, is driven to succeed. You know, it's, it's the bottom line, it's the profit, but we often miss that, that human capital piece. Yeah. Um, and I think more so now we obviously touched on COVID earlier on. I think COVID's allowed a lot of people just go bloody hell what's going on?
1: Yeah. And yeah. I, 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 my, in terms of how I approach, I'm, how I'm approaching the business now is very much more focused and honest, but underpinning it all with a purpose. Everything that we're going to do going forward now is, is ha- we'll have a purpose. And that's the purpose, you know, what service do we offer our retail customers? What service do we offer our brand, our brands and everything will fall off the back of that. We're just going to focus on being the best in class at delivering those SME British businesses into, into the retail destinations. And do you think that that as a business
0: proposition will give you stand out against your peers and your competitors?
1: Yeah. If we deliver it in the, in the way I envisage, um, and I've got a more clear vision on how that should be now. Um, you know, and interestingly, actually it goes back to the original DNA of my original concepts. I think we've been distracted along the way for various different reasons. Some of it's understandable, but I think we're, we're going back to the, the essence of, of what we, we set the business up to do in the first place, which is interesting. So, the producers, which I think um, the, the
0: province piece is, is really popular now, those producers, those, those ethical makers, if you like, what sort of trends are you seeing at the moment in terms of what these producers are making? Obviously, you touched on gym, very popular in terms of spirits, people sort of consuming more um, alcohol, perhaps at home,
1: they've got more disposable income, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. What trends are you seeing at the moment? Um,
1: so it's, it's very difficult because there's, there's so many different categories or strands of categories that we, we do. Um, I, I certainly think that the brands that we're dealing with now, particularly in the pop-up, or oh, it's bleeding into the wholesale business, they understand that the, it's an experience. We want to bring experience, not just into um, the, the, the the you know the pop-up experience for it necessarily, although that is a that is the future, in my opinion. That uh, experiential in-store thing is is we're only going to see that increase so i think the brands are incorporating some of that uh understanding into their product development which is which i think is really interesting so where where you've got tastings or uh you know some sort of giveaway i think the brands are now incorporating that into it but in terms of particular product types it's very different from Mm. From brand to brand, I'll show you some. some no, you're no, I'm yeah, well. definitely
0: interested to to uh, see where that's going. And, and you're right; I think your ex- experiences are the key mm. because without experiences, because we're nothing. Yeah. You know, um, we're, we're just automated bots. You yeah. know, just just processing,
1: and consuming. But it's the experiences that shape us, I think. And that that is connected mm. to the conversation we had earlier about uh, pricing and the architecture. And yeah, we can go onto Amazon or whatever and buy something cheap. Mm. But walking away from an experience like that is, uh, and I mentioned the whole thing with Tom Kerridge and the pans earlier. We did a, 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 a Tom did a cooking demonstration at Fenix in Newcastle. We sold out within five minutes, literally everything had gone. They wanted to sell samples, but the products on the shelves on their own without that experience backing it. And it goes back to your question again about the the salesman, the marketing. Mm. So there are interesting dynamics Mm. there. I
0: think that is the world we live in now. Uh, And I hope, just my own view, I hope that the world doesn't go so far that it's purely just an automated process, a warehouse-driven, dare I say it, by now, want it yesterday model. I think there is a resurgence in the want for time, for moments, for experiences, selfishly to... Want to take a moment to find out a little bit more, mm. ask a question. As you said, that pan on its own is not going to sell itself, but the guy cooking that food in that pan
1: yeah.
0: is going to make the, the difference for
1: sure. Also, in in Britain particularly, shopping's a lifestyle. Uh, it's a it's a it's a pastime. It's go for a lunch, go for a drink, go for a coffee, and do some shopping at the same time. And I think that some of that was taken away from us when a lot of the out of town stores kind of happened. So it was a bit kind of Americanized and soulless. And uh, which works in the US because the distances to drive, they've got big fridges and whatever. And but I think here in the UK, that high street piece of the social aspect, I think will come back full circle. But but we've got to make it different. We've got to make a, a point of difference in those in those destinations.
0: We have to, without a doubt. Otherwise, you're going to see desolate town and city centres, yeah. which I do not want. Yeah. You know, I do want, want both for me, for my kids and anyone else. Yeah. Uh, Matt, final question, if I may. And it's one I think um, those listening um, should and would and uh, must take uh, heed of. And, and that is, um, what one piece of advice would you give someone to live a kinder life? And this may be framed by Matt not kind and Matt mm. who's no kind. I think,
1: I think for me it's, we're not do not, you know, we're not living in the future. Don't worry about, don't concern you about, things about things that might or will not happen don't worry about the past because it's gone it's done be present um listen and give your time to people give time to people um and and use kind words i love that i love that the past
0: is gone very much true Matt it's been a pleasure buddy thanks Tim you have been the kindest in the room thanks where can uh, our listeners uh, reach out to you or find out a little bit more about the Great British
1: Exchange so um, by all means you can email me matt at the gb dot com I'll go onto the website which is the same URL um, I'll give the office a ring uh, or try and contact me on LinkedIn um, the main places. I Superb.
0: No, I think, again, for those listening to that, if you want to get a full understanding of someone who's both open, honest, and true, then certainly, uh, Matt, you have been that person today. It's been an absolute honour. Thank you, buddy. Thanks. Take care. Take Thanks again. Bye bye.
1: and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us. Call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.
0: Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.